one day we're all going to stand before him. And may we know before whom we stand. Thank you. And we will know we will know before whom we stand if we use our days on the earth to be lowly to the ground, on our knees and prostrate before him, in humility, submission, and adoration. Because he says that I will make my place, the place of my feet, glorious. No coincidence that Chris talked about being at the feet of Christ. I believe it's from this position before him, the reverent fear, the deep respect of existing from nothing, purely for, the, for his will and purposes, the arousing awe that all creation came into existence by his word and his word alone. His word and his word alone to be the very stage to express his wisdom, his nature to all the earth, the heavenly places through his people. It's at his feet, ministering before him as he ministers to us his will. It will become clear as daylight. We are children of the light and of the day, not of the night and not of the darkness. This is where our confidence that on the day when we do stand before him, we will be in full confidence and unashamed because we know before whom we stand. Father of glory, today I am before you and I pray for spiritual wisdom that you will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you are, that the eyes of our understanding will be enlightened and that we would know the hope of this calling, that the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. May we know the exceeding greatness of your power towards us who believe, who believe according to the working of your mighty power, which was worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead, seating him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and that every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. He put all things under his feet and gave Christ to be the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, his body, the fullness of him on the earth who fills all in all. Let's sit. Thank you. You know, often I read things and I think to myself when I, when I read this, what in the world are you talking about? What in the world are you talking about? How can I 
possibly know what you're saying or even what you're meaning. And it's in these moments that I'm reminded and so aware of my humanity and my uh, carnal thinking, um, my limitedness. And it's in comparison to the holy, sovereign uh, creator who is the beginning and the end. Um, and it's being in this state of awe um, when he stirs within me that, you know, my heart swells to think that he wants to share himself with me. And there's this saying, you know, that you, you can carry two pieces, uh, two notes in your pockets. One says, you know, I am the apple of his eye and I am the center of creation. I was born um, with with being an object of the Lord Almighty, right? And then in the other, it says, but I am dust, and I am dust from the ground. And it's, it's between that that we find ourselves in absolute awe of the sovereign king, the creator from the beginning to the end. Yet no, he adores the one who's before him and who has set up creation to support the body, that she would be like a theater that would, ma- that would put on display the manifold wisdom of God. He has given us his spirit to search out the deep things in his heart. Um, and he's prepared things for those who love him. The state of being in awe of him, knowing to my deepest core that nothing and no one can compare to him. There is nothing common about him. So why do I try scramble to comprehend him with my mind or modify my being and depend on learning from mere men who he is? Does that, am I saying we can't learn from one another? No, what I'm saying is we can't be dependent on learning about him from mere men. When he's given us his spirit, divine revelation to know him intimately, that we would hear his word and be built by him, rooted and established in Christ, that we would grow into the fullness of who he is. That authentic work can only be done when we hear from him ourselves. I find myself comparing my own holiness with the godliness of others and not of the holy God himself. If I can just memorize scripture or debate this point, if I can be seen praying or doing good like so-and-so, it's, it's this thing in me that um, when it reaches a point of, um, look what I can do, look who I am, in the holiness spectrum, it starts demanding this of others. And it puts this thing on others to now become the standard of myself. Right? And so the standard becomes Mel's standard. And so you must now conform to me. It's not, it's, it's not the way he's, he's done it. But I do this because 
I can then grasp him. If I can make him common to man, I can, then I can do all things and I can have the godliness and I can reign over others with knowledge. And once I'm considered credible in the holy spectrum, seen wise in the eyes of others, I've nailed it. Right? I look good, but I stink of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a stinking act of self-effort. It's a burdening weight put on others to conform them to our puffed-up standard and version of ourselves that is based on what we know, not who we know. And we can sniff it out because it lacks the fragrance of Christ and it's desolate of his spirit. It takes on the form of godliness, but it denies its power. And I want to give us an example. Jesus says, do what the Pharisees say, but don't do as they do. So do what they say, because what they say is right, but don't do what they do. See, because these guys had an understanding. They had knowledge, and they knew the scripture, but it lacked power. The power to transform the hearer, to demonstrate the word, revealing the profound spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Christ in us, revealed in us, is the spirit of prophecy. So when a God-aware believer, a believer who knows they are, they are nothing, but they've been brought into existence by the holy God and have had him revealed in them from heaven, the very essence of Christ, that when that God-aware believer reads the word, it carries the full potential and realization of it becoming a reality in their own life. It carries full potential that it, it would, those words would become life in us because it's already experienced that. It's already experienced his word becoming life in them. And they can rely on the transforming work of the spirit and have full confidence in, in who they know, not what they know, not in their capability of studying the scriptures and researching. These things are good. But he wants to do a work in us. He wants to speak to us in the, in the, in the dark. It says, um, incline your, your ear and hear what I have to say in the dark and then speak it in the light. But therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need, uh, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So don't throw away what you know, what you've heard Him say, what has been divinely revealed to you. Don't let it go, because He builds precept upon precept. says this, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are um, and these are they which testify of me. So you look in the scriptures to find me, but here I am before you, and you don't recognize me. Right? And what happens is this the spirit, it's a spirit, this Pharisee spirit, when it speaks, um it is aware of itself and its own compa- uh, capacity to contain knowledge. It's aware. It's fully aware of itself. 
And with craft, it uses an opportune time to elevate himself over, to lord over the person in front of them, appearing holier than art, but leaving the babes in faith hungry. And the true seekers, some that are heavy and laden, looking for the river of life in its purest form, and they are left high and dry. This is what that spirit does. It leaves you high and dry. You are seeking for something. You are seeking for the the purest form of living water, which is Christ himself. Yet you are left high and dry because the spirit before you is self-aware. So what's my point? My point is we can't learn wisdom. We, We can't learn wisdom. Because wisdom is Christ, and it's him revealing himself in us. You know, and it says in Job that wisdom came from nothing. It's, it's, it's not a wise saying or a great quote, wisdom, when someone's wise. That's not what wisdom is. It's, it can be the eternal thought of God. Wisdom was before the foundations of the earth. Wisdom is what administrated and put um, the, the redemption plan in place. And that's why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. We can't learn wisdom. It's a position before him a realization that he brought me into existence so he knows better than I do. So I come before him because I'm in absolute need of him. You know, I found it interesting. I was reading in Job 32, and um, we know the story about Job and um, uh, God's... God's allowing him to be tested and things are being stripped from him and he's got these friends telling him what he's, you know, what he's done wrong and, and uh, there's this one guy. And uh, it's so, I'm just going to read it because it's so, so profound. So these three men ceased answering Job, right? They ceased ceased from doing, ceased from telling him what they think because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakil, Barakil, the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had confound no answer, left him high and dry, and yet had condemned Job. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. He waited to speak to Job. You know, I'm learning, even in this process, that God has to take me around and around and around again when I prepare like this. It's, it's, It's ridiculous, but I have to get to the end of myself I actually have to get to the end of trying and and it's when I'm finished trying that it comes. Oh, 
And it's like, man, why, why do I do this again and again? But it's, it's in the ceasing. It's when we are still and we know that he is God, that he speaks. And this is where wisdom comes from. It's coming before him as nothing because we are nothing without him. We, we never existed until he brought us into existence. And anyway, so he waits to speak. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. He said, I am young in years and you are very old. Um, therefore, I was afraid and dared not to declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak and the multitude of years should teach wisdom, should teach wisdom. The years, the multitude of years should teach wisdom. But listen to this. But there is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty who gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words and I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. Hear that? While you searched out what to say, while you scrambling to find what to say. The spirit in me wants to speak. And it's another remarkable difference I, I find is that knowledge waits for a time where it can speak after it's searched all the answers in here, after it's researched everything, where wisdom, because it's Christ himself, the person, will speak. And it doesn't scramble, it doesn't search, it knows. Therefore, listen to me, I will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for words. I listened to your reasonings. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. Lest you say, we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. And they are dismayed and answered no more. Words escaped them. And I waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vents. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. Oof. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So I'm not going to flatter, and I'm not going to use words um, loosely. It's not about that. It's about himself, right, being glorified. And, yeah, it's, I just find it interesting because I think it's so easy to have an idea of what we think wisdom is. Um, but his wisdom is so opposite. So when a God-aware believer speaks, it's not just words that are pronounced, but it's the very spirit and power of God contained in the speaker. And when I say speaker, I don't mean person up here. I mean just in our conversations, right, when we're sharing with one another. 
the God is contained in the speaker is manifested. And what happens? He is testifying to who Christ is. How? Because he knows the word and not the words. He knows the word and not the words. This is wisdom. Christ was the wisdom and power of God. He was the manifestation of God, and he did what he said. Christ did what he said he would do. He is the definition of integrity. Ah, so It's so good to know that we live for a God who is integrity. He does what he says. His word does not come back to him void. This is how we will know when there's a gaping abyss of integrity between the word and the word himself. And, you know, this is the difference between man's knowledge and God's wisdom. One lacks integrity while the other is the definition of integrity. And, you know, when we compare ourselves to Christ, the perfect standard, we are humbled. We are humbled. It's in that moment, you know, I can't bear to think I know anything anything, and that I could possibly be more capable than him, or more pure in thought, or even more loving. So when I hear from another person about, when they're talking about Christ, um, you know, anything to do with him becomes of deep interest to me. So my heart opens, and my ear will be inclined, because I I want to hear about him. I want to hear about him, but I want to know who he is who he really is, not second-hand information, right? Because he is the highest standard and the richest love and the wisest all-knowing um, being. And this is what I want to start with, is that, you know, I know today I'm just going to be skimming the surface of his fullness, right? And what I share at any stage will be imperfect knowledge and minimal understanding, but it's Honestly, it's with full conviction and anticipation of what he's doing in us. And that's the only confidence I really have today is, is the conviction I have of what he's doing in us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When I rest in the knowledge that he is present and everywhere, that he is all-powerful, I understand that these two things are the fear of the Lord. And let me explain. The word fear comes from the Hebrew word yara, which has a range of meanings in the scriptures. It can mean fear, like the anticipation of some danger or um, some inflicting pain. Um, But it can also mean awe or reverence, which includes the idea of wonder, amazements, Mystery, astonishments, gratitude and worship. But it's an overwhelming sense of glory, worth and beauty of the Holy One, of the true God. And some scholars link the word Yara to the word seeing, which is so interesting to me because the word wisdom can also mean clarity. So it's a way of seeing. Um, And so it's when we really see life as it is, will we be filled with wonder and awe over the glory of it all. When nothing seems too small or uh, too insignificant um, or random, right? It's like you're filled 
with this glory of who he is because you're more aware of who he is and what he's doing and his purpose than your own life and what's going on. And um, within uh, Jewish tradition, they speak of three levels of fear, right? So the fear of unpleasant uh, consequential punishments or anxiety of breaking God's law, but the highest form of fear is a profound reverence for life that comes from rightly seeing, which is interesting, as I said, because the word means clarity. And Abraham Heschel wrote, uh, once said, All is an intuition for the dignity of all things, a realization that things not only are what they are, but stand, however remotely, for something supreme. All is a sense of transcendence, For the mystery beyond all things, it enables us to perceive in the world imitations of the divine, to sense the ultimate in the common and simple, to feel in the rush of the passing, the stillness of the eternal. What we cannot comprehend by analysis, we become aware of in all. Right? We cannot analyze it. We cannot learn it. It is a sense of... It's a reverence and a deep respect for who he is and what he's doing. For instance, if I was to read this out, Ephesians 3, 8 to 13, says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I love it. That's Paul, right? To me who is, is less he, he understands that he is dust. At the same time, he understands the mystery of God, the entire, uh, the entire creation that has been set up to support the body of Christ, that the, the heavenly eyes are on us. He understands this. So he says it's the unsearchable riches of Christ to make all see Wisdom, to make all see the clarity, to bring clarity. What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God? Beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. This blew me away. Not made known to the church, made known by the church, so the church is to demonstrate something. Two, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. To demonstrate something on the earth that's not just to speak to man, but to the heavenly places, the powers and principalities. according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. If there is ever a day we wake up and we think, what is the point of life? The point of gathering together like this? Am I significant? Am I seen? Does it really matter what I do with my life? Does it actually matter like about church, about the church? Does it, is it really a big deal? Then I, I have been praying and I, I will continue to pray that all of us, all our hearts will be opened 
to the intents, the design of God, the purpose for which all things were made. One grand purpose in the creation of the universe was that the manifold wisdom of God might be clearly shown by the church, by us. Because somehow the evidence of the gospel in the stars, the evidence of all creation is not enough. But he desires to use his people as the the grand theater to display, signally display something of himself. Is that amazing? Paul is describing the church as the grand theater in which the divine manifold wisdom of God is most signally displayed. We, ladies and gentlemen, are the objects in view. We are the objects in view by the heavenly realm. That should be enough to wake up and think, "Mm, today's not just a day, right? My brothers and sisters, we're not just hanging around. There's something bigger than ourselves. 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul describes it as, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. Right? The arena. What arena? What arena? Could, could we possibly be in the same arena of all the forefathers who ran the race with endurance? The Moseses, the Abrahams, the Noahs. Possibly. It's the same arena, part of the same redemption plan. We have been made a spectacle. The word spectacle can mean theater. To the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for little, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. But this is to prove the genuineness of your faith. Because of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them. So before Christ came, the Spirit of Christ was in them. That is how they knew of the things to come. That's how they knew. That is the wisdom of God operating in them before Christ came. It's the spirit of Christ in us that can demonstrate something. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Okay? So we are surrounded and being looked upon by the heavenly realm. The the angels have been inquiring what is about to take place. And they are watching something unfold. What would be so grand that the angels show such a deep interest in what is being unfolded on the earth that they desire to look into with such interest in the church and her movements? 
For what reason do we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, cheering us on to run the race with endurance that is set before us? We are on display. Because throughout history, it's been moving towards the predestined goal, the eventual and ultimate universal recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the salvation of man and the redemption of his soul is being outworked. Possibly the angelic realm are not only to minister to the church, but maybe to learn from her very existence and her fortune. We are in such a fortunate position as the church, to know more and more about the wisdom of God. As it's unfolded from the beginning, before the foundation of the earth, through the ages, as it says in Hebrews 1, verse 1, God's supreme revelation, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the Father by the prophets. So God has been speaking from the beginning, right? right up to Christ when he came, manifested himself on the earth and has been speaking ever since. The same message, okay? There is a hint here in Ephesians 3 of an ancient cosmic struggle, a conflict between the powers of light and darkness that seems to have preceded even the creation of the world. So there's a conflict that's been going on before the creation of the world. The world was created in order that it might support the body. Creation has been, he has made creation that it would support the body to demonstrate something of himself. The world was created in order that it might support the body, the church that would bring this conflict to its final conclusion by something that only it alone can demonstrate, namely the manifold wisdom of God. Do we see ourselves this way? Does this bring, bring deep meaning to our lives or momentous purpose? Does it stir up a wakefulness to what we are involved in? It's too easy for us to find ourselves on the back foot surprised and blindsided by the wars, okay? Things are going down in the world, right? We know this. Um, And we can see it in the physical. And what does it do? It causes a nervous reaction, a nervous reaction when, when actually we know that this is in the word, what this is coming to, what the world is coming to. And it says in Revelation, and it's talking about the enemy that gives the authority to the Antichrist. And he says, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. See, the spiritual atmosphere is intensifying. The physical atmosphere is intensifying. But let's not be found on the back foot reacting. Let's be found on the front foot, alert and ready, because we're not taking our cues from the world. 
We are not taking our cues from the physical things that are happening, but we have already been warned by divine revelation. And we are being guided by the Holy One that we will not make judgments from our physical eyes. But what our eyes see and ears hear, but that we would delight in the fear of the Lord. If we prepare our hearts unto the Lord, he will divinely lead us, inform us, because for in him we live and we move and we have our being. Our whole life is swallowed up in the grand purpose that has been set up that it begins and finishes in Christ. So there is no way that we are outside. We, we don't have to learn from the world. We don't have to learn from um, things that we're physically seeing that are going to cause us to shrink back. No, we're informed by the unshakable king who sets up an unshakable kingdom that is on the forefront of this war. And she knows it. May we know before whom we stand. The war is on. It's, it has started. And, um, you know, it, it signaled something when Christ was on the cross. And I'll get there soon. The heart of true wisdom is knowing the ways and the will of God, living in harmony with the ultimate God-breathed, created reality. Okay, so the fear of God, which I've talked about, is an awe. It's an awareness of who we are, the dust before the sovereign king who's created us and brought us into existence. It's an awe and an awareness of what what is going on, more aware of the spiritual realm than the physical, right? It is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom of God is the heart, the true heart of it is knowing the ways and the will of God, living in harmony with the ultimate God-breathed created reality. Right, Not the man-made reality. It's the ultimate created God-breathed reality that we live in harmony with, that we live in response to, not reacting from the world, but responding to the Lord, that we live in harmony with what he is doing, what he is saying. Wisdom is not an attribute of God, but itself is the eternal thought of God. God supplies a greater wisdom namely his own character and his own life in order that it might become the very nature and character of his people, that we would become the very nature and character of who he is. 1 Corinthians, it says, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God, for the message of the cross cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have been crucified. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the rulers of the age had known, and remember these were the Pharisees and the the high priests of the day, they're the ones who put the Lord on the cross, right? They, They knew this. They, they knew the word, okay? They knew scriptures, yet they still didn't understand. They still did not have a revealed divine understanding of what the Lord was doing. 
Because if they did, they would not have put him on the cross. But what happened? They, when, when Christ finally went to the cross, it says the powers and principalities were uh, dismayed. They were confounded. How can life ending produce life? How can death produce life? It is foolishness. It is foolishness. But it says, no, the eye has not seen, nor the ear has heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You know, when Christ was on the earth, he had the fear of God. It says that. Um, And he had clarity. He had absolute clarity of what he was doing, where he had come from and where he was going. He was only about what his father wanted. So he initiated nothing on him of himself, but complete dependence on, on the father. And then what he demonstrated on the cross, it disarmed the principalities and they were in dismay. They were confounded because if they knew actually what had happened, They wouldn't know what has just been released to the church, the power that's been released to her. He overcame the sting of death, and this should be our proudest moments, right? Not to fear death, not to fear death, because he won that over at the cross. Because now we approach this war according to an endless life. And what does it say? It says, do not Fear the man who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul. That is the fear of God. It's understanding that this physical thing is gonna it's gonna fade. Right? This morning I've got no projector, my the printer wasn't working, all these things. They're nothing. They're gonna go. But what we stand on is him. The substance is him, right? Um Jesus inflicted the initial defeat on the cross, for it was at the cross that the two systems of wisdom collided. Wisdom is not wise sayings or memorized scriptures or regurgitated quotes. It's a value system and a mode of being. One system is made up of force and violence, threat and fear, intimidation and the terror of man who have a need to preserve themselves and their own survival. Why? Because they love life. They love the physical life. The ability to lay one's life down and not consider the life consider life being dear to oneself is the wisdom of God. One wisdom lives for itself, where the other is selfless. Christ never initiated anything on his own, like I said, but he lived entirely to the will of the Father. Just in Hebrews, it says, He uh, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, was able to save him from death. Was able to save his son from death. And was heard because of his godly fear. Christ had godly fear. And that's how he demonstrated the wisdom of God. Because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. God's wisdom is to relinquish, to give up, to yield, and to believe that there is something greater than death, but that not to fear death. 
Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shed in the same, that through death he might destroy him, who's that? The enemy, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who, through the fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So those who were subject to bondage because of the fear of death has lost its sting. Okay, and this... This is our empowerment. This means we can take on anything that life offers. Why? Because we are living according to an endless life. The power of Christ is an endless life. Our security is not from the government. It's not from uh, money. It's not from the things in the physical. Our security is in Christ and Christ crucified. Christ disarmed the principalities and powers, and he made, he made a public spectacle of them. Yes. Triumphing over them. The magnitude of the eternal purpose and the demonstration of such kind that it cannot be made merely by individuals alone. Right? The manifold wisdom of God, the, the wisdom that has been going from beginning to end in various ways through various people, that's what manifold means, various. It cannot just be demonstrated by one person, but by a body. The, it's, it requires an entire people that are freed from the influence of the powers and principalities that have kept people in bondage because of the fear of death, the fear of this, the fear of that. Um, And it's a people that will come through that knowing that their security, their joy, their life, the sustenance is of Christ and Christ alone. The manifold wisdom of God can also be understood as the whole economy of man's redemption and God governing his church through the ages, the various ways of revealing his divine will the different measures of light let out at different times, the different dispensations, which can just mean distribution, distribution, right, of the gospel message, of the covenant of grace before the law, under the law, under the gospel, and to the church. So the manifold wisdom of God, though essentially one, as Christ is one, yet varying, he, um, oh, sorry. So the manifold wisdom of God, so the various ways, yet it's essentially one. Does that make sense? I don't want to confuse people. There's not many ways to God. There's one way, and that's through Christ. And how he reveals himself is in various ways. Okay, so when, when the various ways are displayed, it should point to one. Okay, just want to make sure we um, don't, don't get that. So with the church, we cannot understand properly the single acts of man until we survey, survey them as a connected whole. Okay, so we are not individuals where God is just revealing himself to individuals for the individual's purpose. It's when we survey the history beginning to the end to today and to the end where all things will be summed up in him. It is, it is through a body of people. And that's why we need one another. That's why we need the gifts, because Christ dispersed himself amongst his body, right? That's what the gifts are for. So when we operate in the unity of Christ, we will come into the fullness of who he is. The full stature of Christ, which is what? The wisdom of God, which means we will demonstrate him on the earth. 
that at the end of the war, we will be victorious and overcomers. Cool? All right, I know time is running out. I just want to end with this. Deuteronomy 10.12. First, first, we must know our position, how to fear the Lord, and only then will we be able to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him with our heart and soul. It is the first. Um, and if, if we can go away today and just read Ephesians, it's just so interesting because it just shows that the church is not an afterthought, right? We are the um, part of the eternal scheme, but in the midst or through the thick of the manifold varieties of dis- distribution of the gospel, it's one at the end. But before the church can go into war, she needs to know where she stands, and we stand before him. And when she learns where she stands in her position before him, then she's enabled to walk. Then when she walks, she can go to war. And that's what we're called to. In the grand scheme of things, it's a war. All right, I'm just going to finish in prayer. I feel all over the show today, so forgive me, <clears throat> but I am, I'm happy to talk to anyone after if things didn't make sense or uh, if I wasn't clear on things, um, but I also just want to say, you know, the wisdom, it is clarity, and how can we demonstrate anything if we're not clear about his purpose and his will? We have to have a line of sight. We have to have a way of seeing to understand anything. And that comes from the fear of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my lips and in my mouth. My soul shall make it boast in the the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all those around, sorry, encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. Thank you, Lord. I just... Who is like you, Lord? There is no one like you. And I just, I thank you, God, for your ways. I thank you for how you do things and how you see things. And I pray, Lord, that we will be your people that come before you and that we will know before whom we stand. That we would understand that the fear of death was nailed to the cross that we live according to an endless life in Christ, that we would demonstrate on the earth your will and your purpose with complete clarity, complete clarity and power, that we would be victorious and overcome, that we would sit at the right hand of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Open our eyes of understanding to you, Lord.
We bless your name. In Jesus' name.